0: Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Jennifer Egan is one of my favorite writers. If you've read her, she's probably one of your favorite writers as well. It's not always super easy to interview someone whom you admire so much. But Jennifer Egan definitely made it easy for me to interview her for this most exciting new episode of Wheels Off. I'm so stoked for y'all to hear this super useful conversation we have. Like A lot of really great, actionable like, nitty-gritty stuff about making art in general, about writing specifically. Does Jennifer Egan know what she's talking about? Yes. If you've read her work, you agree with me. There's no doubt. She's one of the great writers of our time. And she has the accolades to prove it, obviously. The Pulitzer Guggenheim Fellowship, National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, National Book Critics Circle Award. She's got all of that, but she's very much, as my old 97's bandmates and I like to say, she's one of us. She's just a person who likes to work. She's down-to-earth, real, sweet, funny, kind, generous. I know that's a word I use a lot in relationship to the guests of my Wheels Off podcast, Um, but that word definitely describes... Most of the folks I get to speak to definitely describes Jennifer Egan. Very generous, very funny, kind. She's great. This Wheels Off is great. I feel like um, I could drop the mic and walk away and, uh, and be happy with the work I've done. But I will continue on, soldiering on to bring you guys... The secrets behind the messy reality that is the creative life. Please welcome to Wheels Off, Jennifer Egan. Welcome to Wheels Off, Jennifer Egan. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, For the edification of our listeners, from where are you logging in?
1: Brooklyn, New York. Nice.
0: (laughs) Has Has that been your home for a long time?
1: It has. I've been here now going on 23 years. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's, the translation of that is I'm old. <laughs> you can live anywhere for that long.
0: <laughs> yeah, we we moved into our house 19 years ago this month, and our son will be 19 in a couple of months. So,
1: My oldest is almost 22, so I guess we kind of have the same settling down uh, <laughs> prerogative history
0: i love it i love it um congratulations on the candy house it's so great
1: ah thanks
0: oh boy and um it was so i was so glad to get to check in with some of these characters and storylines and the world from uh goon squad i just it was such a great you know being a musician and having spent a lot of time in the music industry especially as it collapsed it was such a fascinating thing and Mm. You dealt with it so well, because I think that you let it just be a a setting rather than like every single line. It has to be about music.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I'm not very musical, (laughs) in fact. So, um, you know, I don't play an instrument. I can't read music. I'm it's strange in a way how much music inspires me and how much I, I how many ideas I get from it, given how really uh how how what a complete lack of talent and aptitude i personally have in the realm of music uh so there's kind of a disconnect there that sometimes my readers are surprised by because they think well you must at least know a lot about this i really don't Um, but it's very meaningful both as a source of form ideas but also watching what happened to the music industry or really in a way more learning about it later because since i'm not in the industry I sort of dimly knew from the news, like, oh, the music industry is collapsing. (laughs) But um, I only really got to understand that better when I was talking to people while writing or before writing Goon Squad. But that my awareness of that story and all of the elements of it, you know, how Napster works, what it involves, what kind of bargain it makes with the, the it made with the consumer who felt like they were getting stuff for free, but in fact were paying in ways they, they didn't understand, all of that has ended up being so meaningful and, and almost a template for so much else that has happened online. So the music industry and music itself has ended up being extremely rich for me, even though I'm not a musician and, and, don't, and, and have no talent
0: it's funny that you say that though because i in reading your stuff i find a, a lot of musicality just in the words in the way that you string together sentences and the way that you'll have like little quick hitting uh, passages that happen that are almost like a refrain of a song
1: well that's interesting because maybe what what both of us are feeling is that there's ultimately no difference between music and writing. Um, Storytelling began as an oral tradition. And I like to remember that and think about that all the time. And in fact, in the writing group that I have, we only read aloud. So there's actually no text. We, whoever wrote the thing, (laughs) whatever it may be, reads it, however long it takes. Sometimes it can be way too long, but we have that auditory experience of the work. And what I love about it as as a creator is that it forces me early on to attend to the sound and the rhythm of the language itself, which is an essential element of prose. (laughs) Um, Even if we're just reading it on the page, those forces are acting on the reader, whether they know it or not. And if, if the writer isn't harnessing those tools and using them, it's just a lost opportunity,
0: and so many people consume their books nowadays uh, like I do uh, via audiobook,
1: oh my God. I am an audio I'm an absolute audiobook addict. I am working my way through all those endless nineteenth century books that I didn't read before. <laughs> i I can't figure out why this hasn't caught on more widely. <laughs> yeah. but I just feel like, look, we love serialization. Everyone's addicted to TV serials. I'm not that into TV. It's all happening in 19th century fiction that those were they were the first serializers. And so all the things we love from serialized storytelling are in those books and listening to them on audio gets around the fact that they're extremely long and cumbersome and sometimes the print is really small. It's just such a joy. Um and I, I it's I I feel like it's added a whole dimension to my life, audio fiction.
0: Boy, and the great readers me, mean a lot. It goes a long way, especially in some of those like really famous old classic books, they'll have it's like a famous actor reading it as sort of um, you know, a, a vanity project, which is sweet because it's they're fantastic.
1: Well, and and actually the reader is incredibly important. One reason I love to read stuff that's in the public domain rather than new fiction is the new fiction just has one reader, mm-hmm. but work that's in the public domain often has a choice of many, many. And so you can find the one that really feels right, which is pretty essential, especially for a book that's going to be, you know, in the case of one book, I classic, I read recently, Clarissa. So 18th century, one of the first novels, told completely in letters 100 plus hours wow and it is off the charts amazing so great i cannot recommend it too highly
0: that's so great what's the word for the epistolary yes and uh well it's funny there's a section in candy house that that's kind of that the emails right yeah I, i love that and um it's funny because you deal so much in it's I, i've kind of thrown away my normal format for this and i'll get to it momentarily but i i'm fascinated by this you um deal so much with technology right and the sort of terrifying aspects of the sharing and oversharing and uh, I, like i recently had to um i recently reread a bunch of vonnegut which i hadn't read since high school i was going to do an interview with his library and um and really fell in love with it and found things that i had forgotten completely about, but his player Piano, for instance, his first novel had so much that I, because having recently read that and reading yours now, it's, there was, there's common threads. It's the idea of an artist, a novelist grappling with how much um, our lives are being subsumed by um, technology. The technology we depend upon to make our lives easier is, is making them disappear almost in a way um and I wonder first of all did you grow up reading Vonnegut were you a fan of his at all have you
1: you know he was not a much of an influence for me I read um I've read a couple of his novels not for many many years though so I would have to say no interestingly one reason maybe that he was my stepfather's my first stepfather's favorite writer and he was always like demanding that I Uh, read (laughs) it's
0: the worst
1: I know. It may be why your kids aren't playing your guitars.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: so, um, so no, I would have to say Vonnegut is not an influence. Well, okay. A con not a conscious influence because there's a big difference there. You know, there are people I want to be influenced by and who knows if I am or not. And then there are all the things that we don't know are but are acting through us.
0: Uh, so I know right now, probably so much of your life is taken up by uh, promoting the new book. Um, I wonder about: Are you able to work during this time? Like, and what creative project are you working on right now? And how does it light you up?
1: Um, I am working because I, I, you know, there's such a there's such a long lag between finishing a book and having it come out that I've learned over time. It's really a good thing if I can use some of that time to get a foothold on new stuff. The way the the way that I work is is so improvisational at the beginning that it always feels a little bit presumptuous to say that anything is really going to happen. But the two things that I'm working on now are I'll just mention sort of the time and places that they involve, because that's always my entry point into fiction. Oddly, it's time and place, not people or plot. Um, But I'm really interested in 19 sort of immediate post-war Bay Area. So San Francisco ish in the 1950s Um, and the and the uh, with a kind of I'm very interested in a genre approach to that. So we'll see what happens. I love detective stories. So hard to add value to that genre because there are so many people who have done it so well. Um, so we'll see. Big question mark there. And then the other is very different, but 19th century New York, specifically sort of um, immediate post-Civil War New York, um, but pre Gilded Age. So I'm, I'm sort of interested in New York before the, the the inventions that I think we think of as more 20th century, but really were 19th century, like, like electric lights, recorded music, um, film uh you know uh etc so i'm interested in the the time before that just before that and i don't know how i'm going to approach that i've written a historical novel that i thought would involve a lot of trickiness in in approaching period but in fact it repelled all of that and demanded to be told kind of straightforwardly but this time i'm feeling more like just placing us in the 19th century feels actually really artificial. Um, And so I'm not sure. I think somehow addressing that artificiality artificiality head on may be the way to kind of neutralize it rather than, you know, with Manhattan Beach, I just kind of got in there and told the story. Um, I have to always feel my way through because I just don't know what the the particular story is going to demand.
0: It's funny that you mentioned that it's remember when I said uh, that you deal with music so well because you're not just like fixating constantly on the music. You let it be a, a piece of the story. I, I feel like that was with Manhattan Beach. You, it wasn't as if you were making a giant deal about the 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 period nature of the story. Right. It just happened to be in that time.
1: Well, I started out making a bigger deal about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I found that everyone hated that stuff, so I had to I had to rethink it. Um, no, I, I really actually mean that literally. I started out thinking I will wink at the reader about about the uh, convention of just placing everyone into the past and expecting them to feel like they're there. But what was interesting was that those winks, instead of being helpful, were actually distracting And ultimately, according to my readers, (laughs) enraging. So (laughs) it's really not what the effect I was looking for. I mean, I like a strong emotional response, but not hatred for the material. That's not the response I'm looking for. So what I realized was that my winks, my winkiness was just an irritant. And so it had to go. And I and what I realize looking back on that later is that the material itself, which is so hyper dramatic, I mean, war, you know, uh, shipwreck, gangland murder, survival at sea. How does winking really fit into that context? I mean, the answer is it can only detract. I mean, maybe someone can pull it off. I shouldn't say that. I look, I would love to read a winking approach <laughs> to that stuff, but I think it's hard to wink and ask the reader to take something totally seriously. And from my point of view, you know, when you're te- dealing about uh, with something like survival, mm-hmm. actual survival, not the feeling of, oh, I can't make it, but like someone's about to die. There, it's hard. Where does, a, where does winking fit in? It, it sort of doesn't. So a straight up storytelling approach seemed to serve me best in that context.
0: Boy, and I I got
1: there the long way. (laughs) I
0: I, I wonder for you how that instinct to kind of wink at the the conventions of genre fiction, detective fiction, might wind up playing out for you as, as you're working on it.
1: I wonder, too, genre is so interesting because it invites winking. And in fact, that's one reason I thought I would wink in Manhattan Beach, because I came to that also with a genre vibe, which was kind of the noir, Mm -hmm. um, which is very it can be very self-conscious, certainly in the realm of film. Um, But in the end, it's interesting. I ended up in a different genre, which I wasn't expecting, which was sea literature, which is a genre unto itself, much less ironic. (laughs) <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but the funny thing is they, the two genres, which seem to have literally nothing in common at first glance, what I learned is that they are actually very similar because each of them involves a small pocket of humanity surrounded by a kind of existential threat. And in the noir, it's usually the city. It's a very urban genre. There's a feeling of like darkness, bad stuff, bad people. You know, over you know uh, railroad overpasses and subway tunnels. And then in and in the in a sea genre, obviously it's the it's the natural world. It's the 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 enormity and the power of the ocean. And so in both cases, there's an immediate sense of drama because the stakes are high because of this existential threat. But somehow the winking, there was no place for it in that book. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll see with the detective genre. It's I don't know how I think you have to wink with that one, Um, if only to get a pass on not being that good at it, which is what I fear is my situation.
0: but i love that you i love that you're willing to go there because you know that that it seems like such a gulf between literature and genre fiction and i know there's a lot of people that love both i mean i'm i interviewed i got to speak to michael Chabon for this and you know he is a a big uh lover and uh supporter of genre fiction he started off doing um like uh, he was doing a lot of Sherlock Holmes fan fiction when he was a kid, basically. That was all his first stuff. And I love it. I think you'll be fantastic at it. I can't wait to read it.
1: I'm a huge genre fan. I don't think there's any difference. Um, I've already read, I mean, I wrote a gothic thriller and read nothing but gothic for a couple of years. So I'm And there's a lot of winking in the Gothic (laughs) everywhere. So that was definitely an appropriate approach there. Um, No, I I also love genre fiction. there's so much as someone who's really driven by time and place. And another word for that is atmosphere. What I love about genre is that it's a kind of ready made atmosphere that isn't that is inherently Literary, or and I say when I say literary, I include all art forms, um, film, etc. I mean, one of the great gothic um, influences for me was the extremely cheesy um, uh, soap opera called Dark Shadows, which I was forbidden to watch as a young (laughs) child, and of course, turned on every single time I came home from school, and my mother wasn't there. So anyway, genre is really, really rich. Um, And the question is always just how to do more than just follow the rules, how to contribute meaningfully. And we'll see if I can pull that off. I may not be able to. In my new book, Manhattan Beach, I thought of it very much, very consciously as bringing in many different genres and thinking of each one as a kind of portal into a different world and i was thinking about genre as as basically fantasy portal uh but i don't but in saying that i don't mean in specifically a fantasy genre i just mean the idea of moving among worlds um as a way of experiencing art
0: i love it when when you were i wonder about origin story stuff for you as a writer and was there a moment when you knew this was going to be your life? Was it something you always knew from before you were even conscious of your own self? Was there an epiphany no. moment? No.
1: Well, there was. I definitely wasn't someone who grew up thinking I wanted to be a writer. I was very sciencey. Um, I wanted to be a doctor, actually, um, and I still think that could have been a great career, I have to say, I have a little bit of doctor envy (laughs) whenever, whenever (laughs) the two times that my kids have ended up in the hospital. And thank God it's only been two times. I'm a little bit in awe of of the doctors. (laughs) Um, They're amazing anyway. uh, So, no, I was kind of a sciencey, you know, chemistry set owning um, type of kid, very tomboyish. my doctor was I mean, sorry, my grandfather was an orthopedic surgeon who talked at the dinner table about cutting people open. I loved that stuff. I couldn't get enough of it. Loved his uh, medical books, uh, especially the pictures of like I just loved um, that I love the sort of physicality of human beings. I wanted to dig up uh, uh, dead bodies out of the graveyard to my grandmother's horror. I proposed <laughs> it. Um, So that's kind of where I started, although I will say I always really loved imaginary games and sort of like, you know, just playing a game in which we were characters like doing things that was always really fun to me. And I loved reading and all that. Um, But I I guess the time that I feel like I really knew I wanted to be a writer was during a gap year that I took between high school and college. And um, I was travel. I got a URL pass. I was traveling in Europe with a backpack like, you know, like kids do. Uh, and I I was so um, I felt really lost. You know, I was really lost. I was kind of an unhappy teen. My mother's second marriage was breaking up. Um, I just felt I was also, you know, I was really alone in a way that is almost impossible to conceive of now. <laughs> because it was 1981 and there was no internet, there were no cell phones. And I was from San Francisco. And so I was nine hours uh, ahead in time at a, at a period in our history when, when you made a phone call, it either rang and rang and rang, or someone picked up, that was the best outcome, or you got a busy signal. Like that's how it worked. Um, when I first told my kids that, they asked me if electricity had been invented. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in all seriousness, they that was so inconceivable to them. It was like, OK, you're talking about the realm of before electric lights. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, in that kind of void that I was in, I had amazing times. I have to say, I still think about people I met then, whose whose names I don't even remember. Um, but I also had some pretty scary times, which were I, I, re- I recognized later panic attacks. But in the moment that I thought they were drug flashbacks, which tells you something about my high school years, um, which were just behind me. I mean, look, it was the late 70s in San Francisco. Um, and we all thought Go Ask Alice was true. <laughs> so we were all haunted by that possibility um so anyway i was really freaking out and ultimately had to come back early which was very disappointing because i had worked so hard to earn the money for this trip and i ended up having to buy a ticket back ahead of time and used up a lot of my money that way but it had to be done anyway in that void because of the extremity of it, both positive and negative, what became very clear to me was that writing was just essential to my relationship to the world around me. Whatever, whatever kind of time I was having, it had to include a processing through writing. And so, you know, I I have to say I'm pretty grateful for that hellish trip because It taught me something really important at a very early point. And I never wavered from that point on in my commitment to writing. I was never confident about what I had to offer. And in a way that was really good because even when I had, I was not a precocious writer or a precocious person. So I didn't have much to offer early on, but that didn't dissuade me because that was never why I had committed to it in the first place.
0: I wonder about that because I'll see artists who are so confident and I'll be jealous of that kind of confidence because I've never had that really either. But I wonder if that feeling of hunger, maybe to prove oneself or or even just to actually get better at your craft, I wonder if that's an important thing that maybe is more valuable than being confident, hyper confident.
1: You know, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I think we only have our own our own inner lives to that, that we really know, ultimately. I mean, for myself, I can say that I'm very grateful. I I wish I were more. I mean, I don't always feel stable, honestly. (laughs) Like (laughs) I just feel very wobbly in my sense of myself. And I don't like that because it's just not a comfortable way to move through the world. (laughs) Um, But in terms of my work i think i would rather be that way than overconfident because the goal is always to keep getting better that's what has to happen to stay in it you have to keep getting better and so anything that that um that makes that harder to do is bad and i think for me that kind of hunger that that sense of I don't know, Or sometimes it's not even it, hunger is too exciting a word. It's more like doggedness, just an unwillingness to stop. That quality has really helped me. It's such a pedestrian quality. It's such an uninteresting quality. It's just like I feel like I'm just a I'm a sort of like mule that keeps plodding along. <laughs> it's, I mean, no matter what gets thrown at me, I just keep going. And and I, I I have had huge success with the last couple of books, but I was well into my 40s before any of that came along. And all those years before that, I just kept going. And I, I don't want to sound like I was deprived because I've, I've been able to publish. My books have stayed in print. It's not like I've had a you know, I've been ignored. But m- my success was very incremental. And I'm grateful for that because I do think success in and of itself attention in and of itself can be distracting and can be problematic because it can lead to a kind of self-consciousness and an anxiety and even a kind of paralysis all of which can get in the way of the only thing that ultimately matters which is continuing to get better (laughs) so i try to really focus on that it's so important
0: I love that. I mean, how many essential truths are boring like that? The doggedness (laughs) is the trick.
1: Well, again, I would never want to say what is true for other people, because I do think we the the challenge is always, I think, for each of us to know what is going to ring the best work out of us. That's it. You know? What is the process that leads me to do my best work? And what are the conditions in which I can do my best work for me? You know, um, the condition of being observed, the condition of being um, sort of watched isn't actively is not one in which I'm going to get my best work done. So, for example, although I use social media in a very workaday way, I'm not someone who has like a persona. I don't share details about my own life because all of that feels uncomfortable and not, not is not going to lead to conditions in which I'll do my best work. <laughs> so I'm always thinking about that. Like I want to lean into the things that I like to do and that are comfortable. Having conversations like this is a joy. So great. Let's do it. But but that's just a conversation like I would have with a friend. That's different from being observed or sort of offering up my experience in a a curated way as a kind of sales tool, which is really, as far as I can tell, what social media almost always is, even if what you're selling is just your own life, um, that feels not comfortable and not something that's gonna lead to my doing my best work. So it's personal because I see other people who are using social media extremely effectively in the way I just described and doing really good work. So more power to them. But, it, it you know, it's it's and some of this, of course, is generational. <laughs> you sure. know, I'm technically a baby boomer, um, which is sort of horrifying. And I'm, I'm like the last year of baby booming. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so some, that's some of it, too.
0: But it's expected now, right? The uh, the constant access. I and mean, it's funny, so much of Candy House is kind of about this, right? And and the, letting people into your lives. I know a lot of musicians that are constantly putting their little kids on their feeds. I, I've, I've never put my own kids on it. Just it seems like a lot. <laughs> it seems like a lot. You
1: know, I. it's interesting. Like, I feel like what underlies it is just the basic human wishes to to share, to, to connect, to see, to, to know others and be known. And those are such basic human desires. It's just that it, when technology becomes the intermediary, they, they are, they become different things sometimes, but that's been true from the very beginning. I mean, think about the telephone, like, Gigantic difference between talking to people on the phone and actually being in the room together. In each case, there are, there are gains and losses. Um, so I so I I don't feel judgmental. In that I'm mostly just very curious about all of it. And as you say, it, I use it in the candy house, not in a dystopian way, but in a in a curious way because that wish to see and be seen. Well, the wish to see the curiosity about other people's lives is what drives reading of fiction also, and what drives certainly the writing of it. So in The Candy House, I move in and out of 14 different, you know, uh, points of view and, and deep inside 14 different consciousnesses and try to get at the different textures and ways that these people process their experience. And in a way that my love of doing that and the and hopefully the satisfaction you know, certain readers might take in it is not unlike the the curiosity and the satisfaction of that curiosity that we find online.
0: It's funny, I know I for one, when I reached the end of the Candy House was was only angry that it was over. I thought you just gave me these people. What are you doing? Have you heard that? That's
1: nice to hear. I mean, you know, it's it's an inherently open ended world. Sometimes people express that in a more negative way, which is like, yeah, but you didn't resolve all these things. But (laughs) it's the nature of a book like this that I really can't because, you know, every person is their the center of their own constellation of thought and experience. So if I'm really doing the if I'm I mean, it's a very ensemble book. And and the, the effect is kind of kaleidoscopic. It is one big story, it is one big design, but it falls into place momentarily because all the pieces align in a certain way. Um, but I can't provide all the answers and gain all of that breadth. So in a way, you know, it's not unlike the kind of serialized form of storytelling where we have a lot of different characters. They move in and out of focus as, as the main character. Sometimes they're just someone we glimpse out of the corner of our eye. Other times we're right in the middle of their consciousness. To me, those shifts of perspective are really, really fun. And in a way, this is a book that's kind of about that shifting. So there's, there's and who knows, I may not be done with with this world. We'll see. <laughs>
0: So um, I love what you said about, first of all, about wobbliness. I think that's kind of a great word. I, I know I feel that. I imagine a lot of people feel that. For you, when you've run into those sort of um, the self-generated obstacles, the stuff inside of you that keeps you from maybe doing your best work or from just making it through a day without the anxiety attack or whatever that you mentioned before, um, I wonder when you come up against that kind of stuff, what tricks have you figured out? Uh, to make it through those tough moments.
1: Well, let's see. I mean, I would say there are some times when for whatever reason I just really feel down and it's not it's just not possible to do certain things. I'll almost think like this is a little like being ill today, <laughs> you know? Um and and so when you're ill, you you don't try to do certain things, but there are other things that don't take much skill that you can tackle on that day. So I'll try to just do the things that can be done on a day when I feel really compromised for whatever reason. Um, But generally what I find is that. You know, my problem is a kind of harsh inner voice that is discouraging rather than encouraging, and I've often thought like If I worked well, I actually did work for a person who used to talk to me the way I talked to myself and I stayed with her for three years. That tells you all you need to know. But most any normal person in a work situation in which someone spoke to them the way I speak to myself would basically say, screw you and walk out the door. Well, I can't do that with my own brain, unfortunately so what i find is that actually it comes back to the doggedness i often feel like i can't write in this state and it turns out i actually can (laughs) so i don't take no for an answer very easily and one way that i get myself to work no matter how i'm feeling is by requiring only quantity from myself not quality so my routine is to fill a certain number and when I'm writing a first draft, I should say, because it's really different once I'm in the editing phase. When I'm writing a first draft, all I, I require is a certain number of pages a day and I handwrite my first drafts. So and there, that's also very helpful because my handwriting is very hard to read. And therefore it's hard to judge (laughs) because I, if I'm looking at a screen, the first thing I think is, Oh, I got to go back and fix that. And that's kind of the advantage of writing on a screen. Like you're sort of editing as you write, but that doesn't really work for me for fiction. I'm just trying to fill the pages. There's less judgment that way. And it's harder to get out of it because I'm not saying I have to fill the pages with good stuff. In fact, I never know at the time if it's good or not, but I do have to fill those damn pages. And so it's a way of just keeping the process working. Even when I feel like the harsh voice is, you know, really being cruel and this project has no merit, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Just fill the pages. (laughs) You can think anything you want, but fill those pages. And it's a way that just the work kind of keeps happening, no matter what my brain is telling me.
0: I love that there's an analog in music. uh, The Leonard Cohen used to talk about if he had a song that had seven verses in the finished version, he would sat down and written 45 verses and then called the best seven or even the pieces of the best seven. So I wonder your your first drafts must have giant chunks that don't make the cut.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it, i I love first of all, I love Leonard Cohen. And I love hearing that because that's exactly right. Not only is it not bad to write badly, but I'm creating more choices for myself so that I can pick the best. And set, with my first draft of a long book, the candy House is written was written in pieces, as was Goon Squad. But with a book like Manhattan Beach, I wrote it straight through. So I wrote for a year and a half without stopping. I I forgot characters names. I forgot their personalities. (laughs) It made almost no sense. But even having characters, names and personalities change wasn't bad because in a way those were just different verses and I could choose the best to move forward with. So, yes. And and with the Candy House, for example, I would say there was probably a 50 percent failure rate but the word failure should be in quotes. Is it a failure if something doesn't make it into the next iteration? Or is it just a choice that I didn't end up rolling with? Um, there was a lot of material I couldn't use, let's put it that way.
0: It's funny, I, I get a lot of young songwriters ask me about songwriting, and I always tell them, the first 100 songs you write will be lousy, but you have to write them. There's, yes. You, so then the, their usefulness is is in their existence.
1: And I'm, I'm just a huge believer in trial and error, not as a learning process, as an actual creative process, you know, problem solving is is great. <laughs> I mean, whether it's on the level of, of the sentence, the paragraph, the chapter, I'm you know, if you it, it's it's a it's an uncomfortable feeling to find out that something isn't working either because I know it myself or because I find it out, getting feedback. There's always that moment where I think, and this is back to the harsh voice, I can't do it, it sucks, blah, blah, blah. But the minute I know that something isn't working, I, I'm i thinking about how to fix it. And so trial and error is a fantastic tool, even though the error part is, is, is always uncomfortable and discomfort often feels really unhealthy. And maybe even, like a really bad sign, but I I've learned over time that to 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 not freak out because I'm uncomfortable. It doesn't matter. Be uncomfortable and then fix it. Um, so I, I I really do have a lot of, you know, correction in my in my creative process and I look for it. You it's- know, I have layers of readers. I want to know If there's a way to make something better before it's published, why would I not avail myself of that in the end? I'm going to hear it all. I'm going (laughs) to hear things no one thought of. So I might as well hear as much as I can ahead of time. It's not that I'm trying to please everyone. Don't get me wrong, because my books never please everyone. And I know that. But in fact, they don't even please the same. One book doesn't please the readers of another book of mine, (laughs) but I want to at least hear everything I can hear from as many points of view so that I have a chance to address whatever I think is valid. That's how I work. And there's a lot of discomfort in it. But in the end, it's the way of wringing out of myself the best possible work.
0: I love it. So I feel like I don't know how much teaching you've done in your life, but just from listening to you today, I feel like you could be an amazing teacher. I really feel like you've shared so much with us today. Have, have Thank you? Thank you. Have you
1: taught? Sorry. Not much, okay. <laughs> interestingly. Um, I don't really, I don't teach writing. I feel like there are people who do that really well. And I, I'm not sure I have more to offer than they do. I do, I I have taught literature at the, I taught a literature course at the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, and I really did enjoy that, although I, I wasn't great at it. It was my first <laughs> time um, there were there was there were things that I could have done better for sure. But I loved I loved reading with my students, especially works. So, for example, they re- I started with Trollope <laughs> and I don't I'm not sure any of them had read Trollope before great 19th century serialist i had them do it on audio nice <laughs> it was so it was really it was very fun they did not all love it but it was such it was really a worthy and we ended with joan didion so we basically covered a hundred years <laughs> and there was just a lot to be done there to think about To of course we looked at at books from the point of view of you know of of literary criticism what what does the text mean what is it telling us but we also looked at them as cultural artifacts and i had them do a lot of writing exercises and to sort of get their own creativity and access their own unconscious unconsciousnesses um in class so it was a real mix of things and i i'd like to keep doing that i'd like to further develop all of that because that felt more like something that was specific to me and where i could add value maybe Um, and i would like to get better at it i feel like doing something once and not you know and doing it so so that's not a point to stop (laughs) that's something to build on hopefully
0: Um, so now that you've got kids around this age of your own, I I wonder if you would be willing to try and distill some of this wisdom you've shared with us into, um, what you might tell a 21 year old version of yourself working in today's world. If you were to encounter yourself, what advice might you give yourself?
1: Do I have to have one piece of advice or no, as as many as you want. All right. So someone who wants to write specifically you mean
0: if this is up to you after okay. after my parameters it's all wide open. all
1: right i i think number one i would say try to to some degree start orienting away from the visual which is which it absolutely permeates our popular culture and and get to the text so read number one read more and read the kind of stuff you want to write you know if I'll sometimes find when I'm talking to young writers that everyone's talking about television. Great. Then write for television. If you want to write literary fiction, you need to be reading it. Just as all I'm reading right now are detective stories. I wouldn't dare to try to do this if I were not steeped in the genre. So that's number one. Number two is write regularly don't worry about writing well just worry about writing regularly make it a habit we are trainable creatures we are we are like dogs we will jump if we're taught to jump so teach yourself to jump get to the point where writing not writing feels strange just as if you exercise regularly not exercising feels strange that's what you want to do make it a habit and number three is even though as a culture we lust for success and we all want it and we want it early try to the degree that it's possible and i i couldn't even manage this without the internet so how can i ask it of someone with the internet i don't know but i'm gonna do it anyway believe me when i tell you that early success is not necessarily a good thing and certainly not to be chased after as a goal unto itself if anything premature success you'll be lucky to overcome it enough to keep doing good work (laughs) so do good work that's all that matters it's so hard to do good work (laughs) and it only happens if you make writing a habit read well and wring the best work you can out of yourself Success is just an external thing, so just keep trying to get better and if you do this is a, a this is a promise you will have success because there aren't that many people who do it well. That's my oh, advice
0: I love that this is this is so great I feel like the stuff you shared with me and the listeners today is so globally useful and, and so specifically useful to writers. This is going to be maybe my best wheels off ever. Thank you Aww. so much. What this a is,
1: pleasure. It was great to talk to you. Really you, great.
0: You too. Well, good luck with the, all of the press you, I'm sure, having to do for this new amazing book and, uh, and most exciting to me. Good luck with the detective novel. Really excited <laughs> for that.
1: We'll see what happens. This conversation <laughs> may be as far as it goes, but... No. <laughs> All right. right. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much for listening to wheels off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all.